You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. All right, let's begin number three. We've got one more to do here. Now, we began our talks this morning by asking a number of questions, namely, okay, after Jesus' resurrection, where did he go? Um, why does he leave? What does he have left to accomplish? Wouldn't it have been better if he had stayed? Okay, remember those questions. Um, furthermore, what's he been doing? Why is it important? So I, I pray that by God's grace, these questions will begin to be answered in this final message. Where Jesus went, we've already begun to answer that first question. Um, what, um, we could say in one respect that our three-year-old's answer to that question, we would give an amen. If we ask our three-year-old, where did Jesus go? Our three-year-old might be able to say, if he has been taught, he might be able to say, well, Jesus went to heaven. And of course, what are we going to say to that? We're going to say, amen, that's right, Jesus went to heaven. Okay, where's heaven? <laughs> where's that at? Um, now, in the last talk, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we saw that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And from the typology, and that's what we call it, what we were looking at in Exodus actually is typology. It'd be T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. In other words, what we see going on in Exodus is a type of what we see going on in Acts. So from the typology of Exodus, we can begin to perceive what's going on, namely that just as Moses ascended into the mountain and into the cloud, which was the glory and presence of God, Okay, so Jesus ascends into the sky, right? Much greater than a mountain. He ascends into the sky, into the glory and presence of God. So we say Jesus was taken up into heaven. We can say Jesus was taken into the glorious presence of God. Now, I think one of the reasons we don't go any further than this is because what we're about to look at has a tendency to twist our heads into pretzels. And I, I mean, do you like your head being a pretzel? That doesn't sound too attractive, does it? Um, we are going to have to put our thinking caps on for a few minutes here. Um, but I think one of the reasons why we don't go any further is it's hard for us to conceive of, of going any further. So we, I mean, when we think of heaven, where do we think it's at? I mean, we have a tendency to think of it as maybe somewhere out in the far corner of the cosmos. Um, Maybe some of you, I mean, uh, think of it like I, I have thought of it in the past as some like unreachable place out in the corner of the universe somewhere. Kind of like, you know, you stand at the ocean. You know, if you're on, if you're on one beach, you, you see the ocean. It's, it's all water as far as you can see. But you know that at some point that ocean stops and, and, and dry ground appears. And I've often thought in the past of maybe heaven being like, okay, you look out into the universe and it just, scientists tell us it just goes on and on and on and on. But maybe some point 
all the way out on the other side of the universe, uh, perhaps it stops. And where it stops, there heaven starts. Has anybody ever thought of it that way? I mean, I've entertained those thoughts. Maybe not. Maybe you don't thought of it at all. Um, I don't know. But thinking about heaven this way is thinking about heaven in terms of space. It's thinking about it in terms of space. And um, not space as in outer space, but space as we are currently all occupying some space. I mean space that way. We think about space a lot because we are spatial beings. We occupy space. And we have our personal space, don't we? <laughs> you know, I thought that'd get a chuckle out of somebody. You know, we have our, we're constantly aware of our space. Uh, especially when maybe someone starts getting a little too close to our personal space. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if someone gets a little, I mean, we, think, we go through a lot of effort to maintain this. We don't think about it, but we do. Uh, from the choice of seat we take when we go into a room, I mean, all the time, we're thinking about our personal space. I, I Start studying your own movements and habits and thinking. I think you'll discover you spend a lot of effort dealing with and uh, uh, guarding your personal space, you know. Uh, if someone gets a little too close, we get uncomfortable. We say, okay, a little personal space here. Of course, we're too nice for that. We're not going to say that. We just try to move. We just try to... You know, even our dogs, I mean, my dog does that, you know, you know, you, you got to give him a little hug and he puts his, <laughs> like, hey, 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 <laughs> personal space here. There needs to be a little distance, but let's think about distance for a minute. Let's think about distance. What is distance? What is it? Distance is the relationship between two points, Right? Right now, you're so many feet away from me. Now, you'll notice that no one sat in the front row. I have that written in my notes. In my notes, I have this sentence, no one sat in the front row. Does that make me a prophet? No. No one ever sits in the front row. Why? You don't want to be that close. There's something uncomfortable about that front row, and it can be summarized with one word, uh, relationship. Um, that front row is just, relationally speaking, you're a little too close to the pulpit. No one sits there. No one, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's like a, like a, like a Fisher-Price toy that has these knobs on it. You turn them, they don't do anything. Those seats are just, I mean, they have no purpose. Other than, no, it makes, it makes the second row appropriate. Uh, yeah. I, 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 think, I think the purpose of the front row is like a line yeah. that says, okay, sit behind this yes. point. Um, folks really don't even like to sit in the second row much, you know. Um, where do folks usually go? They go in the back, guarding personal space. Um, so, um, relationally speaking, this front row is too close. Now, I'm teasing. Um, I'm trying to introduce a word that's really important. I'm introducing the word relation, relationship, relationally, if you will, because I'm going to suggest that it's better to think about heaven relationally than spatially. It's a little abstract, 
I'm going to attempt to flesh it out a little bit more and more to try to take it out of the ladder of abstraction, make it a little more concrete for us. But our perception of heaven is in some part informed, at least for some of us as I look around the room, it's informed by the cartoons we watched. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Now, maybe not so for some of the younger ones. I don't know what cartoons you watched. Um, Jim, Tammy, I got a good idea of what cartoons you guys watched. Uh, Dean, we, we watched we watched certain cartoons. And, uh, you know, when, when somebody, like, is floating on a cloud plucking a harp and it's got wings hanging off of them, we understand what happened, didn't we? I mean, um, as silly as that is, and it's just meant to be silly, it's not necessarily meant to teach theology, although there's theology in it, um, we have a tendency to think of things that way. We have a tendency to think of heaven um, in those respects as much as we try to push against that. Um, and the language of up and down, the language of up and down is relational language, isn't it? Up, down. There's a relationship between what's up and what's down. A distance between two different points. And Garth Brooks, um, the theologian that he is, is <laughs> proud to have friends in low places. Now, we don't need any commentary on that song, do we? We understand what he's singing about. His friends are of a perverse sort, a low sort. But when we think about God, we think about God as being high and exalted. See, this is relationally. See how it's, 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 it's not a spatial thing. It's a relational thing. Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay, you're kind of hanging out of abstraction, but you're still dangling there in it somewhere. Okay, let's go a little further. Um, relationally speaking, heaven is above earth. It's a dimension that is above earth. Let's think of it in terms of a dimension, if you will. In fact, earth is one dimension. Heaven is another dimension. So when Jesus ascends, he ascends from one dimension of uh, from the dimension of earth, if you will, from one dimension into another dimension, from the dimension of earth, if you will, to the dimension of heaven. Jesus is actually raised through a gate. And we get glimpses of these in Scripture. We've looked at one already with Moses. When Moses is taken up into the mountain, okay, Moses is brought to a place where the Lord allows heaven and earth to intersect. Does that make sense? The Lord allows heaven and earth to intersect. Um, there's a gateway that the Lord opens, if you will. Um, Jacob has a dream. We'll be studying that when we get to Genesis 28. He has a dream where he sees a ladder between earth and heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And Jacob rightly names the place the gate of heaven. It's, um, it's, a, it's in his dream there. He, he sees a gate, if you will. We get another one in Isaiah 6 where by way of vision, Isaiah is raised to see Jesus high and exalted. You know, we get others, maybe more famously in the entire book of Revelation, John is permitted. He's permitted to see these heavenly realities, you know. He's on the island of Patmos, and 
there he is given this vision. And what happens? John is permitted to intersect with heaven and able to see these things. And they're given to John in a way we need to understand some of them for what they are. They're figurative. Some of them, some of it's figurative. Some of it isn't. Um, that's the task of interpreting that great book, by the way. Um, but at any rate, there's an intersection, if you will. Now, let me take this a step further, and this is where we're going to need our thinking caps. Uh, one scholar has suggested that we think of heaven not in terms of space, but in terms of place. Not in terms of space, but in terms of place. There's a comment um, from a book written by uh, Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow, if you're interested in the book. I think you'll find it helpful. It's a book. It's not a real big book. It's a pretty quick read. But I found, in the name of the book, by the way, is The Ascension. It's subtitled Humanity in the Presence of God by Tim Chester and Johnny Woodrow. I found their section on heaven to be very helpful. They write, quote, We are better off speaking of place rather than space. A place is a room made for something in terms of the thing that inhabits it. A space just describes a receptacle. Uh, Torrance, who's a scholar who's written on the ascension as well, uh, Torrance speaks of heaven as and this is all still part of Woodrow and Chester's quote here. Torrance speaks of heaven as God's place instead of God's space. In this way, we do not ask, where is it? But rather, what makes it open and stay open? So we're not asking where it is. We're asking what makes it open? What makes it stay open? The answer is God's nature and His purposes. God does not inhabit space, but makes His own place, end of quote. Okay, so when Jesus stepped out of the, out of the earth and into heaven, God opened up His place. He made a place for Jesus' human body. Because Jesus' human body, see, we need to understand the incarnation. You see why the incarnation is so important here? is that the second person of the Trinity takes a human body. Hold your hands. Okay, they occupy space. There's a, there's a receptacle in this room, if you will, that is containing my hand and your hands, our bodies. They're, they're taking up a certain space in this room. Um, so um, when we think about heaven, we have a tendency to think about some acreage somewhere, some maybe square miles uh, Heaven is this place that's maybe 160 square miles of paradise, if you will. But that is to be stuck in the categories of time, space, and history. I told you you need your thinking caps here. Um, Chester and Woodrow conclude, listen, this means that to ask, and quote, this means that to ask the question, where is Jesus, makes no sense. It's an earthbound question. It is already to assume that the answer can be given in terms of mathematical coordinates. It presupposes he must be somewhere in our time and space. But Jesus has ascended to be with God. He is in God's place. His location is relationally determined. 
He is with the Father or before the Father or at the right hand of the Father. All relational designations of location. But just as God's presence with us transforms our places, so the presence of Jesus through the ascension changes the place of God. The place of God is reconstructed to include space because a man must inhabit it. God admits space into his place because space is a necessary part of humanity's place. And now a man is in the place of God. This opens the way for the creation of new creation, which unites heaven and earth, and in which God dwells with his people. End of quote. Thank you very much, Rick. What in the world did you just read to me? That's not part of the quote. Um, that's something I added at the end. Um, okay, let, let me see if we can flesh this out. Um, let me see if I can flesh this out. So where is Jesus? That's an earthbound question. Why? Because we're thinking in terms of space. How, it's hard. How do we not think that way? Because we occupy space. We're spatial creatures. We have our personal space. Don't mess with it. We have these little codes and rules. Don't sit in the front row. It's too close. The relationship is, 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 is too close. Okay, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the place of God, a place that God has made for him. And this actually begins to answer the why question. Why did Jesus have to ascend? Because his ascension is the beginning of a new creation. A creation where heaven and earth intersect. So instead of thinking about heaven in terms of actual space, let's think about heaven in terms of a dimension, a dimension that God opens up. Because God speaking, the Father who is spirit, is he centrally located somewhere? We learn from the scriptures that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. Psalm 139 would be a psalm that teaches that, where David says, there's no place I can go and be apart from you. Even if I go down into the deep depths of the sea, there you are. There's nowhere I can go. So God is present with us all the time because he can be everywhere at once. So if we think that way, then if we're thinking in terms of spatial location, we're, we're, it doesn't make any sense to think about the Father in terms of spatial location. As thinking, okay, the Lord is, if you go all the way out to the end of the universe, if you could go all the way out there to where the universe stops, there's this place where it starts, and that's where God is. God's out there in heaven, wherever that place is. And that's not the way we want to think about heaven. God's not that far away from us. If an angel is dispatched to us, does an angel have to be transported all the way from the other side of the universe to here? No, a doorway gets open, a gate gets open, and the angel steps right out of heaven, the dimension of heaven, and right into the dimension of earth. Does that make any sense? Does that start to make sense? This is really difficult stuff to, to try to get your mind around and to try to explain, but... What is happening is when Jesus ascends, okay, and the Father receives him, he opens up the gate. Jesus, trans, Jesus transcends. He ascends from the dimension of earth into the dimension of heaven. But now all of a sudden, something has to take place because a human body is being brought in here. And a human body requires 
a place. This pen requires a place. It has to be somewhere. If it's going to exist, it has to take a certain amount of space, if you will. It it has to have a place where it is. If I lose it, it doesn't cease to exist. I just don't know where it's placed. I just don't know where it is. It's a concrete object. Jesus has a human body. You see why the incarnation is so important here? A true human body, a true soul, ascends into the presence of God. What's God got to do? He has to make a place for Jesus. God made a place for him. So that where he could be, Jesus could be also. He makes a place for him. And this is a place where a human body, a risen, glorified human body, is now, relationally speaking, in the presence of God. And this is the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. Let me keep fleshing this out. Okay, Jesus' work. We've tried to answer the question where Jesus went. Okay, let me do this now. Let in, in the remaining time that we have here, and we'll have time for questions. I've been trying to time this. So we have plenty of time for questions. What I want to do now is look at what's left for him to accomplish. And I think as we do that, we're going to flesh out what I just said a little bit more and more. And I want to finish our talks this morning by saying that Jesus has yet to accomplish really the... He, he goes, he leaves us so that he can accomplish the following six things. One is to rule. Secondly, to assure. Third, to represent. Fourth, to indwell and empower. Fifth, to intercede. And sixth, to return. And there's not necessarily a rigid order in all of these. Um, although I did think about it. I do have them in this order for a reason. That's primarily for trying to help communicate. Um, so there's no... You know, don't think, well, first he went to rule, then he went to assure. Then he went. No, don't, don't think of the order that way. Um, but these are six things that Jesus ascends to do. Let's take them in this order. He ascends to rule. He ascends to rule. Uh, this is one of the reasons I think we ignore the ascension. Um, listen, Jesus is a baby in a manger. That's okay, because he's a baby in a manger. And how threatening can a baby in a manger be? He's a baby in a manger. We can tolerate that in our fallenness. You know, it's easy enough. Come on. Baby in a manger makes for a great story. We can get sentimental about it once a year, and we can, we can go, that, that's okay. Or Jesus is a good teacher. That's still, that's kind of harmless. He's a good teacher, you know. He's always saying stuff we ought to do. Good teacher. Jesus is a good example course, who's going to disagree with that? Jesus is a great example. Or Jesus is a nice guy who loves everyone. That's cool, right? Everybody likes a nice guy that loves everybody. It's not threatening. He's a nice guy. But Jesus is a king. Ruh-roh. That's something we like to push away in our fallenness. We can't have Jesus as a king. 
Our proud, fallen hearts do not want Jesus telling us what to do in our fallenness. It's, that's why people don't believe in Jesus. It's, 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 not, it's not a philosophical thing. It's a moral thing. I don't want you messing with my life. I, I go there and you're going to be telling me what to do and I want to do my own thing. That's why we don't believe in Jesus. It's a moral issue. That's why it's so bad. That's why unbelief is so bad. Um, but Christ's ascension is His enthronement. It's His enthronement. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Christ's ascension is His enthronement. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, it means to be enthroned upon heaven. It, it, it's nothing short of being crowned with absolute power. Absolute power. Um, and Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. See? Um, this... If we don't understand this, we really don't understand the most basic confession of Christian of the Christian faith. The most basic confession of the Christian faith is three words: Jesus is Lord. And if we don't understand this, we don't even understand the most basic confession that, that we are said to profess. And of course, this is in fulfillment of God's promise to David to put a king upon his throne who will rule forever and ever, if Jesus would have stayed with us, we would not properly understand exactly who he is. I mean, for, I mean, for Jesus to stay with us, we would have had, I mean, that would have given us the impression that it's business as, it's business as it was prior to the crucifixion. I mean, things are simply kind of like the way they were before, but things are not the way they were before. Jesus, in terms of his exaltation, is different than Jesus in terms of his humiliation. When Jesus returns, it's going to be different than the first coming. Second coming looks a lot different than the first coming. Um, first coming is Jesus' humiliation. The resurrection and forward begins his exaltation. 
Daniel's vision powerfully illustrates what's going on. You know, as we've already seen in Acts 1-9, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And we've seen that what happens is heaven and earth is, God permits heaven and earth to intersect. A gate, there's a gate. Jesus is taken beyond, Jesus is taken. He goes through the gate. He goes from the dimension of earth into the dimension of heaven. This is what it looks like on the apostles' side of the fence, okay? They see Jesus taken up and into a cloud. Let's, I mean, do you think we could get a glimpse of what it looks like on heaven's side? Like if we can imagine being on two sides, two riverbanks, okay, things look a certain way on this bank. If we're down here at the Ohio River and we look across the Liverpool, we get a view. If we're over in Liverpool, we look across to Chester, we get another view. They're different views on either bank. The apostles see Jesus taken up and into a cloud, and he's taken. What does heaven see? Do we get a glimpse of that? Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Isn't it amazing that we go to the Old Testament to study this stuff? And there's people saying we don't need an Old Testament anymore. My goodness. Daniel chapter 7. In verse 1, Daniel says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a, a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So, okay, Daniel is having a dream. The Lord is giving him a, a vision, if you will, uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Okay. Has everybody found Daniel 7? In verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Verse 3, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man was given to it. And then in verse 5, there's a second beast, one like a bear comes up. Verse 6, we have a third beast like a leopard. Verse 7, we have a fourth beast that's described as being terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And in verse 7, Daniel writes, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, having great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
Verse 9 informs us that they're in a heavenly court and that the Ancient of Days, who is God Himself, takes His seat upon His throne. There are thousands present, and the horn of the great beast is speaking pompous things. In verse 11, I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire, and for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, what in the world is all that about? Some of you are aware of what that's about. Um, the lion is Babylon, the bear is Medea, Persia, the leopard is Greece, the fourth beast is Rome. Uh, another interpretation, maybe some of you parse it this way. You say the lion is Babylon, the bear is the Medes, the leopard is the Persians, the beast is the Greeks, with the little horn being Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrates the temple in 167 B.C. That may be the way some of you understand it. That's okay. It doesn't make any difference to get the major picture here. These beasts are world powers. They're the rising of rulership out of the kingdoms of this world. Um, they represent kingdoms, authorities that rise to great heights, but fall. Rise to great heights, fall. One after another after another. Some are stronger than the other. Some, uh, the fourth beast, amazingly strong. Uh, amazingly strong, but nevertheless falls. Simple enough? Now, look at verse 13. I saw in the night divisions, that's Daniel. Daniel sees in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Okay, on one bank of the river, the disciples see Jesus ascending up into the cloud, and the cloud takes him. But on the other bank of the river, up in heaven, they see Jesus. They see one like a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days. And look at verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is being presented to the Father, and he is being coronated as absolute king of the cosmos. Everything. He ascends to be enthralled. The ascension is his coronation. It's his, it's his, it's where the, the great ceremony takes place in heaven, where here comes the king. Lift up your heads, O you gates. You see, Psalm 24 that the king of glory may come, where, where the father says, lift them gates up. And here comes the owner of heaven, if I might use Jonathan Edwards' words. Here comes the owner of heaven, and he is being crowned as king of heaven. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Now, Paul's already spoken of Christ's um, humiliation, that he empties himself, taken under the form of a servant, even though he was... Uh, even though he was God, he considered nothing to be grasped. Uh, but therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above what? Every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, uh, as, as I'm speaking here this morning, as we're all gathered here this morning, we've got people in powerful places in the United States jockeying for power. One trying to gain power off the other. Uh, thirsty for and hungry for power. Uh, and that's the way it's always been. Uh, the beasts, they rise, they fall. The beasts, they rise, they fall. But we can be of good courage. We can miss the six o'clock news tonight everything's going to be okay because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. I mean, listen, it's going to be okay, everyone, if you're in Christ Jesus. You can miss the six o'clock news if you want. It's going to be okay. That's wonderful news. What's in view here? It's important for us to see that what's in view here is not the lordship of the Son of God as terms of his second person of the Trinity. Everybody get that? Let me say it another way. What's in view here is not the lordship of the second person of the Trinity. Remember Jesus, fully God, fully man. What's in view here is not the coronation of the second person of the Trinity because the second person of the Trinity never relinquishes his authority and power. He's always God. Always God. Okay, then what's in view here? What in view here is the coronation of Jesus in terms of his human nature. In terms of his human nature. Um, what does this mean? Are you ready for this? What does this mean? What this means is that on the throne of the universe, governing all things in absolute authority, is a man. There's a man there. It's Jesus. He is Jesus. In terms of his humanity. So, the ascension of Jesus speaks loudly to the enthronement of Jesus. Think that through. There's a man on the throne of heaven. Hold your hands. He's got these human hands just like yours. Secondly, Jesus' ascension offers assurance. Jesus, he, he rises. Why did he have to go? What's he, what's he going to do? Well, he's got to roll. But he also has risen to assure. And this offers us enormous, enormous uh, security. I mean, how can we know that God is serious about saving us? We could answer the crucifixion. Absolutely. Um, the crucifixion. We could look at the resurrection. Yeah. But don't forget the incarnation. 
And I don't think that's natural for us to go because we kind of, that's why I wanted to give these talks on the ascension because we don't a lot of times think of the ascension. How can we know that God is so serious about saving us? Incarnation. God became man. Not just for 33 years on earth. Jesus doesn't just ascend and cease to be man and disappears into some kind of bodiless existence. No, um, he took on humanity for all eternity. He's always going to be man. Jesus, he ascends to show us the continued incarnation. It's for eternity. And that's why I wanted to begin with the incarnation this morning, because it's forever. It never stops. And there's another application here I want to share. I mean, we can be assured that all of our personal circumstances are ordered by the one who is enthroned in heaven. You know, the one who is enthroned upon heaven is a man who has been tempted just as we are. (laughs) He's been tempted just as we are. I mean, this takes a lot of abstraction out of heaven. Who is reigning on heaven? Who is reigning on the throne? Who is in position of the most authority that there is? It's Jesus. The man, Jesus. And you know something? The man, Jesus, he's a man who cried. He cried. Why did he cry? Well, one, he suffered. But... um, I'd say more than the fact that he suffered, he watched his loved ones suffer. Think about the places in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus cries. One is at a funeral. Why is he crying? He's about to raise the the deceased from the tomb, but why does he cry? It's because others were crying. It's because others were hurting. You see how life-transforming this can be? To, to begin to try to, to begin to try to reason with the fact that reigning, reigning on the throne of heaven is a king. He's a king who is human. He has hands. He has arms. He has feet. He has a soul. He's just like us. He's perfect in every way. And he cried. Crying is not a sign of weakness. Jesus cried. He's not weak. He cried. Why did he cry? Because the people that he loved suffer. In other words, the one who's controlling all things has cried. And he's cried because he suffered. And he knows firsthand what it's like. And he suffered with a greater suffering than we'll ever have to endure. And he tenderly relates to every tear that we cry. Yeah. So we see Jesus ascends to rule. He ascends to assure us. And of course, he gives us this great, so much more could be, we could really spend the morning just talking about the assurance we get from this. I'm pretty confident we could. Um, Let's move on to representation. Jesus ascends to represent us. What do I mean by that? Well, Adam was created in the garden as a public figure. Adam was created in the garden as a public figure. 
He was a representative. You know, right now the election's coming up, there's people running for representative. What does that person do? That person is supposed to be representing the people. Okay, so that person is a public person who represents. Adam is a public representative. And Adam represents all humanity in the garden. And when Adam fails in the garden, because the representative fails, all humanity fails with him. So when Adam fell, we all fell. But Jesus comes to us as the last Adam. In other words, Jesus is also a public figure. He's a representative. And He comes to represent His people. And when Jesus succeeds, well, we succeed as well. We succeed by virtue of His success. And Jesus' presence in heaven before Almighty God is a constant reminder of this representation. You remember earlier when I... Uh, invited you to go to Exodus 28 and you saw that strange piece of garment um, that the priest was to wear, the breastplate with the stones on it, each stone representing a tribe um, of Israel so that when the high priest would go into the presence of God, he would be representing the tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus has gone into the presence of God and he is representing people. He's representing you, Lisa, as he is in the presence of God. You know, he's representing Tammy, both Tammies in the room. He's representing all of us. If we're in Christ Jesus, he is in the presence of God, continually representing us in the presence of God. So that as God sees Jesus, as he sees him, he, not that he needs to be reminded, because he knows, but it's a, it's a constant reminder We've been washed, we've been cleansed, we've been purchased. We are His. We are God's. So, um, one author writes, quote, Jesus ascended into heaven to appear for us in God's presence. And listen to what He says next. Atonement was not complete until Jesus stood before God on our behalf. It isn't complete in, the, in, in, the, in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the atonement isn't complete till the high priest does what? Goes into the Holy of Holies. You see? We think of the resurrection as the final thing. No, Jesus has, Jesus has to ascend. Why? He has to go represent us. He has to go into the Holy of Holies. That's where He goes. A, recept, a, 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 a gate is open. He, he, he exits the dimension of earth, enters into the dimension of heaven. Um, the Lord actually opens the heavens, receives Jesus into the Holy of Holies, if you will. There's not a pattern of the Holy of Holies, but is actually the real, true Holy of Holies. And there we're being represented before Almighty God in the presence of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit by Jesus Himself. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He bears our names as a memorial. He is the sign, the reminder, the pledge, the guarantee that we belong in the presence of God. Our presence before God is as certain as Christ's presence before God. Our salvation is safe and secure as long as Christ is in heaven. How safe and secure is your salvation? It's as safe and secure as the fact that Jesus is before the presence of God.
This is good reason to want Jesus in heaven and not running around down here with us. You know, as, I, as I've asked that question, I've done it kind of pejoratively. You know, why wouldn't it have been better for us if Jesus would have stayed Then we could have made pilgrimage to him and he could have run around? And, you know, I'm speaking pejoratively there. That we wouldn't want that. You see how much more we get by Jesus going into the presence of, of God? He rules, He assures, He represents, He also empowers. Another reason, this might be the easiest one for us to get maybe. Another reason it was important for Jesus to go was so that He could send the Holy Spirit to us. He tells His disciples in John 16, verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. The Helper, of course, is the Holy Spirit, and by way of the Holy Spirit, Jesus can dwell with us. He can dwell with all of us all the time. We don't have to, like, save up to get bus tickets to go to some metropolitan area so that we can be, like, lost in a crowd somewhere and maybe just get a glimpse of Jesus who's only this big because he's so far away. Jesus, actually, by way of the Holy Spirit, can be with us all right now, can he? Uh, but even that, I mean, I think as we're starting to see, as we think about heaven, Jesus is not really out on the other side of the universe at some place where the universe stops and heaven starts. He's in another dimension. And really, all that's between us and Jesus is the Lord willing that that door be open. Get your mind around that. I think that's how Jesus can enter a room with the doors closed. How does Jesus enter the room with the doors closed? No problem. The Lord permits the door to open. Jesus steps through. See? Heaven and earth intersect. Furthermore, it's better for us that the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Jesus says it's for our advantage that He goes so that He can truly dwell with us but not only dwell with us, but empower us, change our hearts, renew our souls. He causes us to see Him, to love Him, to want Him, to serve Him. To re- he renews us to love righteousness, doesn't He? So He empowers us. Uh, he empowers us, and He indwells with us. So He rules, He assures, He represents, He empowers and dwells. He also ascends to intercede. This one's easy. I won't spend much time on it. If you look at Romans 8 and verse 34. Romans 8 and verse 34. There, the the Apostle Paul asks, who is to condemn? Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Listen to his answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is raised at the right hand of God. Who indeed is what? He's interceding for us. I'm really happy that Jesus was praying for me this morning so I could give these talks. I'm really happy that Jesus was praying for us this morning. I include myself with you because I'm listening just like you're listening. I, I want to hear this message too. That Jesus is interceding, praying for us. He, he, he's always praying for us. 
In heaven, there's a reigning, ruling, praying representative with absolute authority. <laughs> so we don't sing of having friends in low places. We sing about having one friend in a very high place, don't we? So he ascends to intercede. He also ascends to return. Jesus ascends to heaven to providentially rule, orchestrate, and consummate his kingdom. And then he promises to return. Now, someone is listening to this. Now, your minds might be getting tired by now, but someone might be listening to this and saying, wait a second, you said he ascends to return. You've also said at one point that we don't want Jesus to leave the presence of God because if Jesus leaves the presence of God, well, then that would compromise our salvation. Jesus must stay in the presence of God. So if Jesus, if Jesus must stay in the presence of God in heaven, then how can he return? Oh, you, you'll like the answer to this one. I'll let Chester and Woodrow answer, quote, even on the final day when Jesus does come to earth, he does not leave a heaven behind. He can never leave heaven without jeopardizing our salvation. Listen to this. Instead, he brings heaven with him to create a new heaven and a new earth. He does not leave heaven to collect us and take us back to heaven. That's how we think of it a lot, isn't it? He brings heaven to earth. He brings the presence of God to the people of God so that the voice from the throne declares, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Jesus ascends in some respects to go fetch heaven and bring it back to us. That's why the second coming is not going to be like the first. As he brings heaven down to earth, God's dwelling truly comes to us. So what do we say in conclusion to all this? <laughs> this has been one of the hardest parts for me. How do I conclude all this? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when we're up to our necks in the messiness of life and the power of temptation is upon us, we can look to heaven and who do we see there? Hopefully we see something differently than we saw this morning. We see Christ. We see that there's a man there, the God-man. Don't lose fact that he's also God. I'm stressing his human nature in this talk, but he's also God. Don't lose that. But he's a man who has cried. And if you woke up this morning, I don't think anybody this morning woke up feeling like crying, but tomorrow's another day. And when that tomorrow comes, you can look up to heaven and you can look at a king who's cried. Why? It's because your suffering and my suffering is important to him. That's why. It makes all the difference in the world. He sympathizes with us. He knows our weakness. In him is all the strength we need. He represents us. He prays for us. He secures us. He rules over our circumstances. He rules over our circumstances. That's huge. Our circumstances are not willy-nilly. Not, we're not just walking through life and just anything at random chance could happen to us that that we're the falling into bad luck. Get rid of the word luck. He's Lord over our circumstances. He 
guarantees salvation for us. He assures us. So let me conclude with this great truth. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul taken from Ephesians 4 and verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to his people, the gift of salvation, the gift of representation, the gift of assurance, intercession, the Holy Spirit, uh, on and on we could go. And lastly, I mean, here's a good one, the gift of heaven itself, which he's going to bring to us in that great day when he returns. And it'll be glorious. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, of having really just looked at an introduction of the ascension. So much more could be said. So much more needs to be said, Father. We thank you, O Father, for meeting us here in this place this morning, Father, and blessing us the way that you have. Father, help to pin these things into our hearts. Help us, O Father, to uh, eternalize all this information. Preserve the tapes, Father. We may listen again. Cause us to forget anything that would be unsound or unhelpful. But Father, feed us liberally from your truth. For your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.